Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to be sharing some exciting offers and opportunities. And please feel free to share this program with people who you know who will also find it of interest. So we get a lot of inquiries and a lot of requests from listeners, emails all the time, asking about this episode, asking about that episode. Hey, Jonathan, did you ever consider talking about this? And I'm often able to wrap up, wrap in many of those questions into uh, topics that that uh, we're discussing anyway. However, recently I was provoked by a listener who wrote something fantastic. He wrote, your programs are excellent. I'm listening to every syllable and I'm so privileged to connect with the people, the land, the politics, the customs and the culture. But can you do an episode, Jonathan, that can help us see the land? And, and now we're going to be speaking later on about Run for Zion and our program that we have coming up in March and want to invite you to physically come here and see the land. But but it provoked me, how could we help a listener to a podcast see the land of Israel in a media that's already, uh, that that's only audio? And I found the perfect person uh, to do it. David Ha'ivri is an Orthodox Jew living in Samaria who has a career in local Samaria, uh, as a local Samaria councilman and as a consultant for foreign engagement and strategic leadership management and social media. After a decade of leading geopolitical tours in Samaria and hosting hundreds of high-profile guests and influencers, he became a licensed tour guide to show people all of the land of Israel. In this capacity, he's been at the front lines of two very important bridge-building efforts. First of all, building better relations and understanding and mutual respect between Jews and Christians, which is what the Genesis 123 Foundation is all about. And second, establishing relations and platforms for dialogue and cooperation between Israelis and Palestinian Arabs in Judea and Samaria. And I want to talk about that today as well. Much of his work in international affairs has included organizing and leading diplomatic delegations to foreign capitals, including Washington, London, Brussels, uh, Lagos, uh, and Nairobi, where he has also organized conferences in support of Israel. And I relate well to David because in order to build bridges between Jews and Christians, or or just in general, one needs to create a positive avenue of communication outside one's comfort zone. You need to move out of that and be able to uh, in, engage and explore other people's input and knowledge and, and do so with respect. And David actually is one of these people who I, I know who does so. He reaches out to people in other communities and countries, showing respect to other beliefs and, and other customs and other traditions without being judgmental, and at the same time, representing and not compromising on his own Jewish faith and values. 
David was quoted, this is an important uh, quote I want to read. David was quoted recently saying, we live in one of the most amazing times in history, nearly 2,000 years after the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem and the loss of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. The Jewish people rose up from all parts of the diaspora and returned to the ancestral biblical homeland to reestablish the modern Hebrew-speaking state of Israel. Fulfillment of these prophetic events is a clear sign of the process of the beginning of the redemption that we read about in the Bible. These events have sent waves into into theological thought, not only for Jews, no less for Christians, who for many years, some of whom believed that God had disregarded his covenant with the Jews and that they were doomed for life in disgrace and suffering. These realizations have opened opportunities for new understanding and new friendships between Jews and Christians, which which may replace centuries of hostility and persecution. I hope to be instrumental in guiding the winds of change toward a blessing for the people of Israel and the nations who bless Israel. Wow, David, that's so powerful. I, I, I get chills reading your own your words, and I want to thank you and welcome you to Inspiration from Zion. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for reading that quote. I enjoy hearing it even more than I enjoyed saying it. When you reread it, it you, I hope you realize the significance. Sometimes we say things that are profound, but only in rereading it and realizing how powerful those words are. You, I mean, it, it gives me chills. It's, it's strong. You nailed it. It's an inspiration from Zion. I guess just being here in Zion. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Power, the inspirational power and thought so hear that folks today people are getting a double dose of inspiration from zion all in one episode so david this is amazing i want to jump in but before we talk about and i really do want to talk about uh um relating with uh, with our palestinian arab neighbors um and what you're doing because many people think of you and me living in judea you in samaria me in judea um as um, being an obstacle to that but i want i want to ask you first and foremost you were born in america you're not you're not a native israeli how and when did you get to Israel? When I was uh, 11 years old, my family made Aliyah. Aliyah is a Hebrew expression that literally means ascent, rising up. And in our modern Hebrew language, we use this term to uh, describe a Jewish person who has moved from the diaspora, from the exile, and has returned to live in the land of Israel. We consider that to be an ascent, moving up. So my family moved up, returned to the land of Israel when I was 11 years old. I was born in the United States. My uh, father became a Zionist. He became excited about this uh, national uh, revival and wanted to be part of that. So he brought his family, my family, to live in the land of Israel. And what did you think as an 11-year-old? You're the age that my oldest daughter was when we made Aliyah 18 years ago. And she had her challenges. And I think you did it a few years. Well, you're, you're, you're a little bit older than 11 now. So you did it a few years before we did. But there are challenges. What, what was that like? Were you in, first of all, how did you feel coming here? And how was being here? There are definitely challenges for all ages. Uh, moving from uh, your country of birth from the culture and language that you are accustomed to. There are are challenges for people of all ages who make that move. And uh, I, as an 11-year-old, was very excited to be part of this. It was uh, 
greatly exciting, but it was also uh, testing, uh, leaving behind my uh, larger family, my extended family, my cousins and grandparents and my friends and school and uh, and things that I was used to. And coming to Israel in the early 80s uh, was very different than uh, today. Is Israel has advanced greatly over that period of time as far as infrastructure and uh, economics and uh, almost anything you can think of. Uh, there was a much greater gap between uh, what I was accustomed to in the United States and what we found when we came to Israel then. Uh, and even now, I, I know uh, that people who come from Western countries to visit Israel, even for a 10-day tour, uh, they, there's a, a culture shock of uh, so many things that they find sure. here that are different than what they're used to in their, their own countries. Sure. Yeah, I could write a book about our Aliyah experience. One of the best, there's so many, but one of the best, when we, we, we literally, we landed, we came already in a year that plane loads of, of Jews were coming from North America at a time. It wasn't uh, a one-off family or a couple of families and being greeted by, by um, a, a few people at a time on a plane load of tourists. It's a whole, it was a whole chartered plane full of immigrants, 250 or so of us. We plane lands, and anyone who's been to Israel knows this. The plane, you, 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 there's, it's, it's one of the most, it's the only time that you're emotional when you're landing, unless you've really experienced, um, some very, very rough, uh, weather and flying. And then people cry, people applaud, people cheer. Sometimes people sing, certainly pray. It's an amazing experience just to land in the state of Israel, but all the more so you have a plane load of 250 immigrants. We're crying, we're singing, we're doing all those things. And in the back of me, I hear someone say, put me on the next plane back to America. I want to go back to America right now. Turns out it happened to be my seven-year-old daughter. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, she, she, I guess she didn't read the cue card. And, uh, and what was so interesting, and it makes sense, that we had uprooted her. We, we, we educated them to love Israel. We knew that we were planning to come here from when all my kids were born. But we, let, we, we pulled her away from everything she knew and everyone she knew. And so it's normal for a seven-year-old to be concerned and, you know, intellectually. But now you're in a new place, never been there before. And now all of a sudden, uh, you're, you're faced with the fact that your family's in, in another country. So anyway, I, I'm so glad for you sharing that. I like to people relate and also want to mention that um, that through the course of the year, the coming up year, uh, the Genesis 123 Foundation is going to be doing a whole series on immigration on immigration. Um, one of the one of the tremendous uh, prophetic pro- prophecies, well, that's redundant prophecies that we are privileged to be living to and people can witness. And you and I and our families have the privilege of living out. Um, so, OK, so you're an 11 year old. You're now a veteran. You, I'm assuming you've done your army. You're an adult, gone to university. Um, now, how does a nice Jewish guy born in America end up like you in Samaria, the biblical heartland, much less involved in politics and as a representative all over the world? I'm curious about that. Well, my, my family, my own family, my wife, Molly, and I came to the Samaria some 30 years ago, and a pretty short time after we married, 
Mali had grown up in a moshav. Her family, her father is a shepherd. Cool. They, they, they lived in the Galilee, near the Sea of the Galilee. And she was used to living in a small town. And I was uh, interested in learning in Jerusalem. And together we wanted to settle the land of Israel and be part of something, something pretty new that we could be founding members of building a community in the heartland of Israel, of replanting our roots, the roots of the people of Israel in our ancestral homeland. And all of those ideas came together. We scouted out throughout Judea and Samaria, seeking a town that was good for us and we were good for the town. And uh, finally, we found the town that we made our home. It's called Kfar Tapuach, which means the village of Tapuach or the village of the apple. And uh, that, that name is actually a, based on a biblical name. It's the name of one of the 31 cities that was conquered by Joshua, Yoshua ben Nun, when he entered the land of Israel. In the beginning of the book of Joshua, there's a list of 31 kings who Joshua had uh, taken uh, taken their cities and taken the prisoners. And the village of Tapuach was one of those 31 villages. It's also mentioned again in the book of Joshua as a, a border, a cornerstone on the border between the tribes of Joseph, the tribe of Menasheh and Ephraim. Tapuach is right there in the middle between these two tribes, between the land of inheritance of those, those tribes. But that, of course, was a very, very long time ago. And fast forward to modern times. Sure. We uh, moved to this town and uh, have been uh, active in uh, leadership over the years. And seeing the town grow, when we first came, there were only about 30 families. And today the town is is uh, going towards 300 families. Nice. So uh, we've seen the town and the whole region Right, build up, and we've seen the build up of the infrastructure and also tourism that we will be speaking about right, later right. on. Uh, tourism now is more available. It's much more accessible. Yeah. Uh, so, so you infrastructure. know what? If, yeah, infrastructure and, and and people are more aware as well. So it's a it's so actually this kind of jumps into where we, what we're what we're intending to talk about because originally. We could talk there. There's we we could have a a podcast episode every day for an infinite period of time, talking about different um, biblical, modern historical, regular historical sites that people should know about. But you and I are talking about going to talk about several that we're referring to as those that are off the beaten path, and 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 it's fascinating. But I wanted just to circle back to one point you made relating to the name Tapuach, Far Tapuach, how it's mentioned. It's the land that Joshua conquered. It's not just a name in an area, but, but you know, it's not, uh, like I, every state, I think every state in America has a place called Middletown. Somewhere in the middle of the state, there's a town called Middletown. And their, name, their state city is named for the presidents of, of, of the United States going back to the founding fathers. And, and, and all of that's very normal. But when you talk about the land that Joshua conquered, it's not just a generic area. You're talking about 
the land that Josh, Joshua conquered. You're talking about where you are. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned, obviously, people know Joshua conquered the land thousands of years ago. But we're st- the, the, the modern and the historical overlay is what we want to emphasize here. So let's jump into it. You, you came up with a great list, which we're going to talk about. And, wh- and, and we're going to go be going north from south, more or less, in a straight line. I mean, as much as there's a straight line on these uh, windy roads that go through, the, uh, go through Samaria and the J- Judean mountains. Um, but we're going to start in the north in the area that you're talking about that has tremendous biblical significance. Um, we call it in Hebrew Shem, uh, which which should be, I would hope, in most people's Bibles mentioned as Shem, but they might call it Nablus um, as well. And we're talking about Joseph's tomb. It is off the beaten path in a, in a lot of ways. Why why is that so significant? What's the, let, let's jump in there as if we're beginning a day of touring, seeing sites off the beaten path, and help help our listeners start with Joseph's tomb and Shem in general. You know, I, I like to start with this area, even before I speak about Shem, but of course it, it has to do with Shem. I ask people about the very first connection they have with the land of Israel. The very first connection of the people of Israel with the land of Israel. Where does that, where did that begin? Or I might even ask people, I'm, I'm talking about when I have a group of people in the Samaria, on the bus, and we're going out there, and I say, have you ever heard of Zionism? What, what is Zionism? Could you put your finger on the beginning of Zionism? When, when did that begin? So, of course, the, the very most simple definition of Zionism is the connection of the Jewish people with this, this land, with the land of Israel. And who was the first Jew? Who was our first father who connected with this land? And, of course, I got people throw out names trying to connect Zionism, and some people might say Ben-Gurion, and some people might say Herzl, and and some people might think further back. But I'd like to take you all the way back. What's the name of your organization? Genesis 123. Genesis 123 Foundation, right? You got it. So I, I know that there are a lot of Christians, Christian Zionists, Christian lovers of Israel who are, who, who that... That term Genesis one two three uh, rings a bell because if we look in the book of Genesis chapter twelve, th- chapter twelve verse three, of course, is the blessing. But if the blessing occurred, ah. God blessed Abraham. He, he blessed the, the nations of the world through Abraham at this place here when Abraham reached this place. And if we go back four verses, we go back to the beginning. If we read this whole chapter. We'll see, in Hebrew, we call this lech lecha, go out from your father's home. Abraham receives God's command to to come to the land that he will show him, where we live. Exactly. So here, too, we are now visiting the land of Israel because we, too, had this inner calling. God spoke with us. He said, go out to the land. And we came to this land. And Abraham, too, had this calling. God sent him here. God said, go out to a land that I will show you. But he didn't tell him what land he was going to. He said, I will show you. Right. And Abraham went out and he reached this place. He reached Elon Moreh. He reached Shem. The very first place that our father Abraham reached when he came to the land of Israel following the calling of God was here. 
So this is actually the very, very, this place represents the very beginning of the connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. So it's so interesting that you say that, David, because when we, if, if our title is seeing Israel off the beaten path, that actually is not only from, from a biblical perspective, it's not only not off the beaten path, that's the first step on the path. It's the very first, very awesome. first step on the path. Awesome. I want to talk about it. I want to just take a quick break. We're going to do a commercial and then come right back, but I want to take a quick break and then come back and actually talk. So what happened there in Shem and, and, and Joseph's tomb as our, as our first off the beaten path point that should be really heavily, tra- heavily treaded upon. Let's come right back. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so David, just before the break, um, we were talking about the significance of the area. And and Shem, again, known in, in English as Nablus, uh, is, is a pillar of biblical history here in the land, connecting the, the, the Abraham and the Jewish people to the land forever. So, so why, I mean, and, and, and you wrote specifically, when we're talking about this specifically relating to Joseph's tomb, Joseph didn't come back into the land from uh, exile in Egypt. Actually, he didn't come back alive, but he didn't come back even his bones until many, many centuries later. Why is that so significant? What's, what's the, why, you mentioned that w- why we're talking about Shem and the significance, but why Joseph's tomb there? I wanted to answer this question from a couple of different, couple of different dimensions. Sure. And, and in Israel, in Torah, in archaeology, in history, everything that has to do with Israel, there are so many dimensions uh, that we can, it's like, it's like peeling an onion. There's ah, another good. layer and another layer and another layer. First of all, the city of Shem, the rabbis in the Talmud, Tell us that there, that all beginnings took place at Shechem. All beginnings for the Jewish people began in Shechem. So there are many different layers. There are many different dimensions that we can speak about regarding Shechem. And we touched on, on the very first that Abraham first came to this land. And now we're speaking about Joseph, who was buried here in the city of Shechem. And of course, there were a couple of very significant events that happened between these two events. Historically, and we can read about them in the Bible, in the Bible as well. But you asked Jonathan, how did Joseph come to be buried in Shechem? He didn't die in the land of Israel. He, he died in Egypt. The Torah, the Bible tells us that Joseph, before he passed, he called in his brothers and he made them promise that he told them that a day will come when you will be redeemed from the land of Israel, from the land of Egypt, and God will return you to our father's land in the land of Israel. And he said to them, I, I want you to promise that you will take my bones 
with you to be buried in the land of Israel. And the Bible tells us that the children of Israel actually took the bones of Joseph with them as they were, they left Egypt, the great yep. exile. They wandered in the, in the desert for 40 years. They re-entered the land under the leadership of Joshua, Yoshua Binun. And they, at the very end of the book of Joshua, the Bible tells us, and the bones of Joseph were buried in the city of Shechem. The rabbis in the Talmud ask a very interesting question. They say, what, what merit did Joseph have to be buried in the land of Israel, even greater than Moses himself? Oh, wow, right. Who was not buried in the land of Israel. Wow. He passed, and his, he passed on the other side of the Jordan River before they entered the land. So it's very, very interesting that Joseph was promised to be returned to the land that he was abducted from. Yeah. We read in the Bible that the brothers of Joseph envied him and they kidnapped him and threw him in a pit in the valley of Dotan, which is also in the Samaria. Joseph had come to see his brothers who were minding the flocks. They, they grabbed him and threw him in a pit. And then they sold him off into slavery. And that's how he ended up in Egypt. The rabbis tell us that Joseph was promised by God to be returned. He said, return to the land that he was stolen from, that he was abducted from. And Joseph was ultimately returned by the tribes who entered the land and buried at the the land that was purchased by our father Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, who purchased the plot of land in Shechem. By by the way, there's another Midrash in the Talmud that it's very, very interesting. Rashi also quotes this. Rashi, the great commentator of the Torah, yeah. the very beginning of the, his commentary, he says that there are three places in the land of Israel that the nations can never say that the children of Israel stole or took by force from the nations. And those three places are Shechem, because the Bible tells us that Jacob purchased this land. And Hebron. Yeah. The Bible tells us that Abraham, our father, purchased the cave. Yeah. And the Temple Mount, Jerusalem. Because the Bible tells us that our King David purchased the plot of land from the Uvasee. So those are three places that are all on our list today. Of places off the beaten track. Yes. Not not only are they off the beaten track, and, and one of the questions that you asked is, how, how did it come to be that this place, Shechem, which is the first place that Abraham came to when he entered the land of Israel, and Hebron, the place that he purchased, Abraham bought, and the Temple Mount, where King David bought, those are the places that the rabbis 1,600 years ago wrote, that the nations can never challenge our ownership on. And shockingly, 
the the Arabs who are claiming ownership of the land of Israel, those who call themselves Palestinians, are demanding those particular pieces of land. The yes. city of Shalom, the city of, of, uh, of Hebron, and Jerusalem. Right. The Temple Mount. Excellent point. Places. Excellent point. And today, uh, by, by full disclosure, when people come to see, to go on this tour with you, when they come on Run for Zion in March, and, and we and we take them to see these biblical places, Shem, we have to point out, is currently under Palestinian authority control. So, so actually, any in order to go to Joseph's tomb, it has to be under armed uh, armed guard. And there have been problems there not uh, not that long ago. What uh, a few months ago uh, was it? The the, the 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 tomb was torched again. Was just desecrated and torched again. Um, so we need to understand that. But I love that you're, I love you're connecting, helping to connect the dots. I love how you started asking rhetorically, okay, who was the first Zionist? Because, okay, Abraham, but Joseph, he was abducted when he was 17 years old. He lived the rest of his life out in Egypt, but he always wanted to be back in the land. And, and it leads to a fascinating conversation. But in a sense, because he was abducted there and he came back and his bones were buried there, it was not just that God, that his brothers listened and pe- imagine, it wasn't like they could just write it down. Uh, his brothers died, his, 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 uh, great nieces and nephews died. It was generations before Moses led the Jewish people out and they knew that they had a responsibility to bring Joseph's bones with them, closing the circle, bringing him back, not just to the land of Israel, but exactly the land from which he was abducted in, in Samaria. Very, very good, very important. Um, and I'm looking forward. Um, I actually, now that I think about it, full disclosure, I don't, I've never been to Joseph's tomb. So maybe you and I will rectify that one day soon and we'll bring some guests along. Yes, we should definitely do that. Great. And as you mentioned, Joseph's tomb is currently under the control of the Palestinian Authority. It's an area A, which is an area that is off-limits to Israelis slash Jews slash friends of Israel. It's dangerous. People are from Israel are not allowed to enter in a, on a regular base to Shechem. The closest we can get on a, a regular day without special permission is on Mount Grizim, the Mount of Blessing, right, which overlooks the city of Shechem. And there we can go to Joseph's lookout and we can see the tomb of Joseph. Ah. When we go there today, whether we're on the lookout or if we enter the city on those days when we do have special permission and, and very strong military escort to actually visit Joseph's tomb, we can see that the tomb is within a very populated built up area. And some have questioned the the tradition of Joseph being buried at that place. How do we know that it's this building and not another building? Why why here particularly? But we have a photograph that was taken 100 years ago. Right, correct. I've seen that. Uh, and it shows Joseph's tomb before it was taken before World War One. Uh, it shows, shows Joseph's tomb in an open field with yep. no buildings built up around it. So we can see that a hundred years ago, it was not hard to pick out the site of Joseph's tomb. Excellent point. And it's a site that pilgrims throughout the ages, Jews, Christians, other travelers, 
who wrote their diaries of visiting the land of Israel, Great. wrote that they visited this place on, on the road, on the way going south towards Jerusalem, near the city of Shechem. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that. That's so important. Let's, let's keep moving south a little bit. I, we, we, it's funny. I'm, I'm concerned that maybe there's some, we could spend an, uh, an hour talking about Shechem. Um, but we, we bit off, we, you and I decided to bite off a big bite and talk about several different locations. So we'll, we'll see if we can move south and get through, through all of them, or at least most. And if not, we'll have round two. Um, Shiloh, or as some people pronounce it, Shiloh, um, is also in Samaria, not far from Shem. Um, friends, we, we are, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're going south on road 60. If uh, our listeners have a map of Israel, if you have a modern road map and you look in the center of the, the narrow land that is called the state of Israel on the mountaintop, you might see a road that is marked number 60. And yep. that road goes from north to south on the mountain ridge, which is Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria is the higher ground. It's the mountain. And that road the modern road is on the same path of a very ancient road that existed 3,000 years ago and probably before that. And many of the biblical events took place along this road. So on our conversation today, off the beaten track, yes. we're going along this road and we're stopping at very important biblical places along, along this road. So now we've reached Shiloh. Which is which is now quite developed. But what's the significance, Shiloh itself? What's the significance there? I've been there. I don't want to give it away. You you talk about that. Why 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 is Shiloh significant that we should be discussing it, even though most tourists are not yet going there? Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle, the tent of worship of God, stood for three hundred and sixty nine years. The Children of Israel, we, we might be familiar with the temple that stood on the Temple Mount, where up until the destruction of the temple, Jews gathered from around the world and brought their sacrifice to God at the temple. The temple, the first temple and second temple together stood on the Temple Mount for nearly three thousand, for nearly a thousand years. But before that temple was built, the Jews worship, the ceremony took place in a large tent that was called the tabernacle or the Mishkan in Hebrew. And that Mishkan, we read in the Torah, in the time of Moses, when they wandered in the desert, right. the tent was dissembled and reassembled at each one of the stations. That's so it was like a piece of Ikea furniture. You pack it up back in the box and bring it along with you to the next stop, basically. Yes, but, but you, you need to realize that it was very large and the pieces were very <laughs> But it was a, a type of Lego that could be disassembled and then reassembled. There, there, also in the Shamron, not far from where we are now, there is a life-size model of the Mishkan, of the tent. And that is at the Eshel HaShamron Hotel in oh, Ariel. right, yeah. So on our tour off the beaten track, we could visit Shechem. We could go by the model of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in Ariel. 
And then we could go to Shiloh, which was the site that the tabernacle stood for 300, 369 years. Okay, but let me ask you a question. How do we know, like, I live in Efrat. Efrat is a biblical name on a, on, on a lot of levels. For those who don't know about it, email me at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'll talk about the significance of the biblical name of Efrat. But Efrat, where I live, is not necessarily where, where the precise biblical location of Efrat biblically. How do we know that Shiloh is really the place where the tabernacle stood? And that wasn't just someone saying, oh, it's around here. We're going to say it is. That's a great question. And it's a great question about biblical sites in general, identifying biblical slash archaeological sites. And archaeology, of course, is a science of, of investigating, studying human activity in historical times. There is an archaeological dig that is taking place at Tel Shiloh, at ancient Shiloh. Currently, it's one of the largest archaeological digs. It's, it's definitely one of the largest active archaeological digs at this time in the land of Israel. And a number of teams have been digging at Shiloh for over a hundred years. Wow. Different archaeological missions from different places. And today there are a few who are working there at the same time. In the archaeological, in archaeology, there are, in Israel in particular, there are a couple of different uh, systems of determining the identity of an historical site. One of them is an ongoing tradition. If there's an ongoing tradition regarding a site, like, say, Jerusalem has never been forgotten. So we've always known where Jerusalem was, but up until about 150 years ago, we didn't really know, we had forgotten where the city of David was. And at that time, archaeologists who were forced to dig outside of the Ottoman walls of the old city, because the Ottomans didn't want foreigners digging in the old city of Jerusalem. Luckily, they were forced to dig outside of the walls, and that's how they found the city of David, which is on the southern side of the old city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has an ongoing tradition. Hebron has an ongoing tradition, and that that is very important. There are sites, many sites in the land of Israel, that their ancient Hebrewic name has been Arabized. So they might have, the site might have a name in Arabic that is similar in a way to the ancient Hebrew name. Which, by the way, many people will hear nowadays and think it's gone the opposite direction, that there's an Arabic name that we've Hebraicized. Yes, which could, in some instances, that might might exist. But in many instances... There are about 500 places that are listed, that are written in the Bible. There are 500 different locations, more or less. And uh, many, many of them have not been identified uh, the exact location. Got it. Shiloh is one of the locations that has a number of different systems uh, of academic systems for identifying a location. Shiloh has a number of those uh, overlapping. So the ancient tradition, the geographical description in the Bible, the Arabic name that is similar to the Hebrewic name, 
and an arch, an ancient uh, inscription calling this place Shiro that was discovered in an archaeological dig. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. So we're, we're, we're off the beaten path, albeit, albeit diverting from a relatively major road. In Samaria, in a lot of places, it's a two-lane uh, road with, a, with no shoulder even. But, but, uh, but by Israeli standards, it's still a very major road. And we're going south, and, and this is all real important. Now, and, I, and I've been to Shiloh, and there's a modern visitor center there. It's quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, it's the same thing in Joseph's tomb, and I'm glad you mentioned what you did in terms of depicting the fact that we know it's Joseph's tomb, because from early ph- photographic evidence, we've got, we, we know that we're, we're standing there where Joseph, where Joseph's bones were buried. And now we're standing in Shiloh, where the tabernacle stood for 369 years. I want to move south a little bit. Um, you know what, Let, let's, before we do, let's just do another quick break and then come back because we're, we're onto some good stuff, but I don't want to forget to, to make this announcement. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill. They are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis one two three dot co slash bless a soldier and when you do you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people please join us okay so now now a little further south and a little further west we were coming across a, a, a current community a town called Beit El. In, in English, it translates to House of God. And it's also funny, just as we're speaking, I had to Google it just to be sure I was right. In many places, I mentioned how how every state probably in America has a middle town. I don't know if every state has a Bethel, but any state that has a Bethel, people need to know that it's coming from the from the Hebrew words Beit El. And, I, and, and just as a uh, music lover, historically, we, got, we can't overlook on a different, off, off a different beaten path, the, the site in Bethel, New York, where Woodstock took place in 1969. But amazingly, despite things that went on there that probably weren't so godly, some tremendous music uh, in a town that's named for this next biblical site, which is significant for a lot of reasons. Most, correct me if I'm wrong, mostly because of Jacob's ladder. So why is that? Okay, Jacob, we're out of the, we, we've now, we, we've gone from Joseph coming back. The tabernacle, the Jewish people have come back into the land, and now we're going, we're, we're reversing uh, historically, and we're going back to Jacob. What's what, what's going on in, in Bethel or Beit El? I think uh, again, what's important to to realize is that we are on a main road. We're on the, the central road of the mountain, and we're on a road that connects us between these biblical places. 
So if you're going from the south of Israel, say you're in Beersheba, and you want to go up north to Mesopotamia, and this is one of the main roads that you're going to take. It's very logical that you're on this road. So if Jacob is on his on the path going north from Beersheba that we will reach later on, he's going to, to stop here. But I, I also want to point out that this Torah, our Torah in this Samaria and Judea, is all off the beaten track. Uh, not all tour groups are going here. You need to really be on a special tour group with special organizers who make a point to take you out to visit these places. Uh, and so we, we really have a great opportunity on this, uh, on this podcast, on the session to speak about this, but I hope that it's going to cause our listeners to uh, really want to come out and visit these places. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And so, but, to connect with the, the fathers, the forefathers and mothers of the nation of Israel. Who right. Here. Right. No, no, but is in Beit El, is there a ladder? You know, we have Joseph's tomb. Is there a ladder? Can we see the ladder? <laughs> we cannot, we cannot see the ladder. We can. There's another place we can see a ladder, but that's for another podcast. Yes, I know. That's a good one. <laughs> we can see a stone. In the Bible, it tells us that that Jacob gathered stones and used them as a pillow to place his head on the stone. Wait, David, and- I just want to interrupt for half a second. It's too good to pass up. I want to offer any listener who emails me. With the other significant ladder that we're talking about, and I think I'm, I'm 99% sure that we're on the same page, I'm going to buy them lunch in Jerusalem. But now, talk about talk about the the the, the pillows, the, the the stones that Jacob used for pillows. Jonathan, I'll throw in a, an, another another gift. If that day, listener, who you buy lunch, I'll take the two of you to see the ladder. How's that? Excellent, excellent, good. <laughs> okay, okay. So Jacob is there. He's put his head on the stone. And he's taking a rest. He falls asleep. But about the Eshel Shamon visitor center at the hotel in Ariel, where they have the Mishkan. They have a Bible park with different exhibits that have to do with biblical stories. And one of the exhibits that they have there at the Bible park is this event of Jacob and his ladder with the angels, the dream that he saw, the angels going up and down the ladder while he was asleep. The, the, he slept at Beit El, and it is believed that the top of the ladder was on top of the Temple Mount, which you could see from, from Beit El. Excellent point. And we're going to continue moving down, down south along Road 60. Where's our next stop? So this is where it gets controversial. I mean, usually the listeners know these are not scripted conversations, but you and I needed to prepare a little bit. And since you're the expert and you're the tour guide, I said, David, let's come up with a list. And the next stop, you said, Jerusalem, Temple Mount. And I pushed back and I said, wait a minute, Jerusalem is not off anyone's beaten path. It's the center. It's, I mean, it's, it's Zion. This is the, this is it. And, and, and specifically the Temple Mount. It's, it's, I mean, it, as significant as Jerusalem is, the Temple Mount is, is the 
whipped cream and the icing and the cherry and the sprinkles on top of the significance. So how can we even be talking about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as being off the beaten path? That, that's a great uh, that, that's a great topic for discussion. How, how did the Temple Mount become off the beaten track? And uh, as a tour guide, I've got a lot of mileage in Jerusalem on foot. I, I walk around a lot, and I actually get to a lot of places in the old city of Jerusalem and in different parts of Jerusalem that are off the beaten track uh, for regular tourism. The Temple Mount, as important as it is, and so ironically, it's, it is off the beaten track because not everyone goes there. Not everyone can go there. And you can't go there whenever you like, you can, if you would like to go there. And that is if you're a Muslim, you can, but not if you're, not if you're a non-Muslim, specifically Jew or Christian. Exactly, exactly. The Temple Mount has 10 gates. There are 10 gates leading into the Temple Mount on the western side and on the northern side. Nine of those gates are open 24-7, and there are certain people who are allowed to enter at any time during the day or night. Those, those people are Muslims. Anyone who is not Muslim is not allowed to enter through any of those nine gates. You're only allowed to enter one of the ten gates. It's the gate on the southern part of the Western Wall, just south of the Western Wall Plaza. The gate is called the Mugrabi Gate. And the Mugrabi Gate is open for visitors who are not Muslim for about three hours on weekdays from Sunday through Thursday and for about an hour at midday, which changes summer and winter. The exact hour changes. It could be from 12.30 to 1.30 or from 1.30 to 2.30. There's a bit of a change there. Let me know if you want to visit and we'll we'll check that. Okay. Um, So non-Muslims are allowed to enter only during these designated times um, on through Sunday through Thursday. And non-Muslims are considered visitors. You need to go through a very very uh, tough security check, very similar to getting on a plane at an international airport. The point is to put your bag through the x-ray machine uh, and you need to go through a metal detector. And then once you get through, you get a briefing from the Israeli police who make sure that you understand that there are restrictions, special rules, regarding visitors who are not Muslim. And mostly the rules are there to tell you that you are not allowed to make any religious gestures when you are on the Temple Mount as a non-Muslim. By the way, it was a great analogy talking about going through an international airport from security perspective, but there's something that's done at the Temple Mount that's not done anywhere else at at any international airport I've ever been to, which is you can't bring a Bible with you. You can't bring religious articles with you. And no one's ever stopped me at any airport in the world to check inside, to check if I'm carrying something that has religious significance. That is right. That is totally correct. Uh, I, as a tour guide, my, my Bible, not only am I a Bible believer and a Bible learner and Bible reader, but it, the Bible is also a, a work tool for me because correct. I... 
need to carry my Bible wherever I go and open it up at the relevant places and read the verses and, and share the scripture. So I normally have a Bible in my knapsack, but when I plan to go to the Temple Mount, I need to remember to leave my Bible somewhere else and not yes. take it with me. Yeah. Because otherwise I'll be stopped at the entrance. And I, I have had that happen. Right. Not, not only that, I once was not allowed to take an apple onto the Temple Mount. An apple? Yeah. The uh, police officer told me, you cannot take that with you. Why? I said, why, I said, why not? It's an apple. You know that the Jewish people make a blessing before we eat a food. Right. And the Israeli police officer who refused to allow me to take an apple onto the Temple Mount, he said, you cannot take it with you because I suspect that you might be planning to make a blessing on the apple when you go onto the Temple Mount. Wow. So you have to leave it here. Wow. Okay. I never heard about that. A a preemptive blessing. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks for now, But David, let me ask you a question. I, I in fair, in full disclosure, I've only been up to the Temple Mount once. And that was when I came to Israel first as a kid. And it was before I was uh, Orthodox, before I was religiously observant. And this is back in the 80s. And I don't know what changed, but we were even allowed, I remember it vividly, we were allowed to go into the Dome of the Rock, um, one of the two mosques up on top of the Temple Mount. I remember that so vividly. And now you can't. Now, now that doesn't happen. But my question is, the Temple Mount is significant. You mentioned before that it was a place that that, uh, that was purchased. Obviously, um, the tradition is on that rock, in the Dome of the Rock, is where Abraham brought Isaac to, to sacrifice. Our, our, our Muslim friends say, for some reason, that it was Ishmael. Interesting, interesting adaptation. No, in the Islamic tradition, the, the sacrifice of Ishmael was not... Here was in Mecca. Some, oh, some I didn't know that. Thank you. Okay. But the Muslims do have a tradition regarding the rock as well, but it's a different Got it. Okay. Thank you. So thank you. I, I never knew that. Thank you. See, I'm, I'm learning as well. But here's the question. You go up there now. We just a few, a few weeks ago observed the, um, the, the, the mournful day, the day of mourning in commemoration of the destruction of both of the temples. In the, in the last, the second temple was destroyed in the year 70. When you go up to the Temple Mount, what do you see that gives you any inclination that there was really a Jewish presence? Or has everything just been co- a, a Jewish presence, a biblical presence, which Jews and Christians both both uh, revere? Or or is it all just been erased and, uh, and, and, and in modern speak, canceled? We, we uh, commemorated the destruction of the Temple the second temple, which took place in the year 70, uh, 1950, two years ago. And uh, since the, a, lot, a lot of water has, has gone through the valley since that time. And things, different things have happened on, on the Temple Mount throughout the period. Some At certain times, it lay desolate. At certain times, there was Christian activity on the Temple Mount. Muslim activity on the Temple Mount. Currently, there are two major Islamic uh, buildings on the Temple Mount. In its very center, there is the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Globe. Golden Dome, right. That's what people see as the picture. That's right. The iconic picture of Jerusalem with the the Golden Dome in the middle. And uh, that 
according to most uh, scholars, is the exact place that the temple stood, first and second temple stood over the rock uh, that is underneath the golden dome, uh, the dome of the rock. That is in the center of the Temple Mount. And on the southern side of the Temple Mount, there is a very large mosque that is called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. In the current day Muslim tradition, they consider the entire Temple Mount to be the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Right. That wasn't always the case. Right. Only a few decades earlier, they considered the mosque on the southern part to be the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the rest to be the, the mount. Uh, but uh, they've expanded their, their claim. By the way, I want to just interject. If anyone wants some great historical uh, information, you have it, uh, probably I do, reach out. There's a great document prepared by Muslim leaders, I believe, in 1925, d- documenting the fact that even then they um, they understood that the the mosques were built on the Temple Mount of the Temple of Solomon, and they've written about it as such. It, it, that that was erased in the early 1950s when it was no longer politically convenient for their for their uh, uh, narrative. But if anyone wants a copy of that, I have a PDF of this old document. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I want you to finish talking no, about that, the. That's OS. fine. It's very very important to point out to, and to understand when religion is used to serve political claims and. Uh, and theological, we see, we can track theological or tradition, change of traditions. At one time, the Islamic trust uh, acknowledged that this is the site of the Temple of Solomon. And uh, in current day, uh, Islamic scholars surely here, it will deny that uh, as a matter of fact. Right. So those are the structures that we see on the Temple Mount. What can we see, what can show us the historical um, evidence of the temple that stood here? It's sadly and ironically, the Temple Mount, which is one of the most important archaeological sites in the world, one of the leading archaeological sites of importance, uh, uh. Is, a, is not, has no archaeological work being done because of political sensitivities. No archaeologists can work on the Temple Mount. A few years ago, the Muslim caretakers of the Temple Mount dug out an area called Solomon Stables on the southern eastern part of the Temple Mount. They trucked out 180 truckloads of, of debris, of earth, of, of a material that they dug yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, and they poured it in a garbage dump in eastern Jerusalem. Some uh, archaeologists went and uh, shifted through some of that material and they started finding archaeological uh, artifacts. Uh, So it's a very ironic story. The first archaeologists who started shifting in Israel, there are laws regulating archaeology, archaeological digs. Correct. And uh, those uh, archaeologists were arrested by the police for handling archaeology without a permit. So on the one hand, the, the Muslim walk dug it out with heavy equipment and they threw it in a garbage dump and nothing was done about that. But then when archaeologists came and started studying the material, they were stopped by law enforcement. Uh, but they were persistent and uh, they succeeded in eventually receiving permission to manage that material 
and they established a site which is now called the Temple Mount, Temple Mount Shifting Project, where they, they are shifting through the material to find archaeological um, artifacts. Right. And the important thing, I mean, that's very significant, but one of the important things from an archaeological basis, because when people do digs, you do it slowly, layer by layer, and when you have 180 truckloads just dumping debris in piles, you lose this that you can identify afterward if you're dealing with first temple, second temple, things in some, in, in many instances where you can do carbon dating, but you lose that opportunity to under, understand what's the, what are, what are those layers? Like you mentioned, peeling back an onion, the different layers upon layers upon layers. I'm, you know what? I'm so glad that, that, that I conceded to your suggestion that the Temple Mount needs to be there because it's really important and, um, and, and it's the derivative thereof. It's this Temple Mount sifting project and what's come of it. Um, that's excellent. I know there's a lot more to talk about there, but I wanted, I want to kind of jump south a little bit, talk about my, my neighborhood. If you're a parent like me, you know there are plenty of reasons to worry about our kids, but there's one particular issue with enormous consequences for our kids that many are uncomfortable discussing, online pornography. As kids spend more and more time online, they're being exposed to explicit sexual content at record rates. By age 13, many are exposed to graphic sexual content that has serious lasting consequences. Even though research links pornography exposure to worse mental health, unstable relationships, and other issues, the big tech companies are doing almost nothing to stop it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that's helping parents take back control over what their kids see online. Canopy uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence developed here in Israel to make the internet safe for our kids by blocking explicit material on every single website. You can learn more and subscribe with special rates at canopy.us. And when you use our special discount code, Genesis123, at checkout, you'll get 30 days free and 15% off your subscription forever. Your kids will thank you for life. And, and by the way, people need to who are looking at a map need to look and understand how close Jerusalem is to Bethlehem. They're, I mean, they're, they're, they're like sister cities, um, twin cities, um, really, really separated by, by, uh, by nothing, <coughs> uh, especially today, since both have been built up. But Bethlehem is significant for a couple of things. Um, Old Testament Jewish tradition and also uh, New Testament Christian tradition. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Yes. Bethlehem, like the city of Shechem, for the most part is an area that was given over to the control of the Palestinian Authority. So again, not only is it off the beaten track, but it, it is, is complicated challenging, difficult to access. Surely the Christian sites in uh, Bethlehem, uh, it can can be done. I, I get a lot of requests from people who would like to visit Bethlehem, and uh, that, that uh, demands some uh, special arrangements, which could be uh, bridging over with a local Palestinian guide or working with a, a, a cab from Jerusalem who has permission to enter Bethlehem. It's it, it just a, technically it's difficult getting in and, in and out aside for the issues of security and uh, Israeli guides 
coming into Bethlehem to the Christian sites. Uh, but again, it can be done. And each case of a visit to Bethlehem is a, is a challenge in itself. But I don't want to discourage people. I want to encourage people to, to visit all of the sites in, in the, the land of Israel, in the heartland, including Bethlehem, Jericho, and uh, Shechem, Nablus, and uh, Mount Ival. We haven't sp- spoken about that at all. The, the altar of Joshua. Uh, on the Israeli side of Bethlehem, there is the traditional tomb of Rachel, of Rachel, the wife of Jacob. And that too is um, surely off the beaten track uh, because of the security situation. Uh, it has been, it, there was talk when Israel was giving over Bethlehem. Yeah. The prime minister at that time at first thought to give over uh, Rachel's tomb to the Palestinian Authority as well. Uh, but uh, uh, we're glad that uh, he changed his mind and, right. and left that part as uh, accessible for Israelis. Uh, the access is kind of through a corridor of a security wall on either side of the road leading into Rachel's tomb. There are, are public buses that enter or tour buses or tour vans. You can go right up into to the site, get off and visit and pray. There's a synagogue and a yeshiva, a, a, a college of study that takes place at uh, Rachel's tomb. Um, what else can we say? So I want to ask you a question about Rachel's tomb specifically, um, because our next stop is going to be, our, our next and last stop on this tour is going to be Hebron, where the rest of our patriarchs and matriarchs are buried. They didn't all die in Hebron. And they so they were transported. They were moved there like Joseph. Joseph was brought from Egypt. But Rachel, she's unique. She's, okay, fine. Jacob had two wives. Maybe there were sisters. Maybe maybe there would be not nice to bury. I don't know. I can't even think of, of what was going on. But okay, but that's where she died. And she was buried there rather than being transported. What would, what would take us in a regular car today? Uh, half hour, 40 minutes to drive? Um, it, wh- there's, there's a lot of biblical tradition also as to why Rachel was buried there and not in Hebron, where all the other patriarchs and matriarchs are buried. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, on the one hand, we, we should consider in ancient times, if a, a person passes, where, where would we bury them? If we don't have the, the modern means that we have today of refrigeration and, uh, and other means of, of delaying the funeral, the burial would have to take place very, very quickly at the location, even on the road. So it makes more sense to think that Rachel was was buried wherever she she was at the time of her passing, and brings up more questions regarding the other burial places, the others who were transported from from distant places. So in uh, in in Egypt, maybe they also had techniques of uh, preserving the bodies, uh, of uh, mummizing the. Being able to transport the the, uh, the bodies, but uh, 
Rachel according to the tradition that is accepted today. And that too, in the scholarly world, there are um, different different opinions as to the authenticity of this tradition in comparison or in the versus other traditions. By the way, the city of Bethlehem, there is another city, not only in America called Bethlehem, but there are there's another city in Israel or another location in the ah, north. Ah, yeah, excellent. So excellent. Some some might believe that uh, Rachel's tomb might have been in a different place, and that this tradition developed later. Interesting, but there are old pictures similar to what you said about Joseph's tomb. There are pictures of Rachel's tomb on its own, in a field, isolated from Bethlehem, which, by the way, would be the normal Jewish thing anyway. Bodies were never buried inside a city. Um, that's that's yeah. never happened. There's one tradition, before we move on to Hebron, there's one tradition, I, I and I, I can't remember from where, that Rachel was buried there, of course, because it's where she died. Excellent point. And it leads to questions why the other six weren't. But, but that foreshadowing the expulsion of the Jewish people during the destruction of the first temple, that Rachel is buried on the road, which the Jewish people would be forced out of Jerusalem, and they would go by that, and that was, in a sense, giving them comfort. Do you, do you want to expand on that at all, or should we just leave it at that? Let's leave it at that for, for now, and go to Hebron. Let's go to Hebron. So now it's, like I said, half hour, 40 minute drive in a regular car, continuing down Route 60. Uh, we're now, we've now uh, gone, we've, we've, we've gone to the peak of the Judean mountains where I live. And now we're, we're, we're going uh, down in, in altitude already. Hebron, as you mentioned, is one of the uh, locations that, that there's a biblical deed that Abraham purchased it. Are uh, all of the matriarchs and patriarchs are buried there except for Rachel? Uh, yeah, except for Rachel. So why? Why? I mean, it's the off the beaten path is a little further away. But why, why are we talking about Hebron today? Hebron is a, one of the four holy cities in the Jewish tradition. The four holy cities are Jerusalem, Hebron, Tiberias, Tveria, and Sfat. That's where Jewish people lived. There were Jewish communities before the beginning of modern-day Zionism. And the Jews who lived in these cities protected the holy sites of these cities. Hebron is the burial place of the patriarchs and matriarchs of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah are all buried. Hebron in the Bible is also called Kiryat Arba, the, the town of four in the rabbinical tradition, it is believed that there are four couples who are buried at Maratha Machpelah. Adam and Chava, the first oh. man, Adam, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, okay. Abraham and Sarah, Yaakov and Leah, and Yitzhak and Rivka. Isaac and Rivka, yeah, Rebecca. Um, there is the Maratha Machpelah. It's a huge building that uh, symbolizes the burial place of these couples, which is today divided most days of the year, half or part for Muslim prayer and part for Jewish prayer. 
on 10 days each year, each, each religious group get access to the entire building. On the Jewish holidays, the entire building is open for Jewish prayer. And on Muslim holidays, the entire building is open for Muslim prayer. But the two areas are separated. By the way, work has just begun on building an elevator. Ah, yeah. Access to the ancient building, which is an elevated building. In order to get into the Maratha Machpelah, you need to walk up a, a few flights of steps. Yeah. And the government of Israel has decided to install an elevator to make Great. the entire building accessible Great. for people in wheelchairs. So the work has be, begun. Hebron has a, was also the capital, the first capital of our King David. Excellent. The Bible tells us that David was king of Judea for seven or seven and a half years uh, before he was called by the northern tribes of Israel to assume kingship over the entire nation of Israel. And at that time, when he became the king of the 12 tribes of Israel, he moved his capital to Jerusalem, which was a more central located place in order to have more access for all of the tribes. In Hebron, there is an archaeological site called Tel Hebron, where there is an ancient Canaanite wall from the time of King David. A huge, amazing wall. Could you imagine seeing a huge eight-yard tall wall wow. that was built 3,000 years ago? Wow. Now being excavated by archaeologists. Wow. Hebron. Literally unearthing biblical history. Totally. Amazing. And there's a Jewish community. There are about 150 Jewish families who live in the city of Hebron. Most of the city, like other cities that we've spoken about before, is most of the city is under control of the Palestinian Authority and is off limits for Jewish people. And we're not able to bring tourists into those areas. But the areas where there are there's a Jewish-Israeli presence are open for our tourists, yes. and we can walk around and visit the, the community and the holy places and also visit a very amazing museum at Beit Hadassah yeah. right. that tells the history of uh, the city of Hebron very from nice. biblical times until today. So what we've basically done today is made the case why these quote-unquote off-the-beaten-path we need to we need to beat a path to these places off a beaten path uh, and the significance of them. And I feel I mean, first of all, David, I want to thank you for giving so much preparation and insight. Um, you can probably do this with your eyes closed, but I know you, you, you put some time into into thinking through. But I also feel on the other hand that we've done something in the in the touring Israel world that some might even think is criminal to go through several sites in, in, in a little bit over an hour. You know, we could spend we could spend hours at each one of these sites, and we've all we've done is really give a flavor for why people really should dig in, literally and figuratively, to do it. So I want to thank you for that, and we'll. I, I'd like to first of all, as always, I'm always asking people for feedback. I'd love for feedback. I love people to answer the question about where the other ladder is, and join David and me for lunch and a and a tour of the other ladder and uh, and and some of these other great places. 
that need to be seen, that need to be understood as part of that onion, how we, how our biblical, the, the overlay of the modern day here in Israel with, uh, with biblical history. Thank you for, for everything, David. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing, I look forward to touring with you at the places that we spoke about. And I look forward to seeing your listeners here in the land of Israel. Seeing our listeners. Let's see. Let's see. We're going to get that. Um, let me, let me just wrap up with a couple of other comments. First of all, I always like to kind of joke tongue in cheek. If you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward. So beginning this year, if you've been following, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been offering a special gift each month, giving away what I call a special volume from Jonathan's bookshelf. Please go to the inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we will select one person at random to win one of these special uh, gifts. It's been a real blessing to be able to do that. We're grateful that the Inspiration from Zion podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. I always tell people if you're in the area, pop in and say hi and thank them for helping make conversations and great programs like this possible. And also thank you to our our friends, the Coyne family, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This episode, while I have the prerogative as the host, to be sure that we are sponsoring in honor of our friend Dan, who posed the original question and challenge, how can we uh, really show the land? And I'm, I'm interested in Dan's feedback and all the others to see if we've done a good job and should we be doing more of these. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or another special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. As always, we love to hear your comments and questions as part of a dialogue and invite you to send anything as well, especially questions you have about Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who you know will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and all your loved ones are safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.